Greetings everyone, and welcome to episode 5 of On the River of History. I'm your host, Joan Turmel, historian in residence. The survivors of the great mass extinction event at the end of the Permian inherited an impoverished world. With up to 96% of all organisms having kicked the bucket, there were essentially no ecosystems present. The land was scorched and charred by a hothouse climate, and the seas chalked with acidity. It took over 10 million years for life to recover, and when it did, the planet again hosted a pageant of strange and fascinating creatures, shuffled along by whatever environmental changes came their way. This episode concerns the Mesozoic Era, which began with the close of the Paleozoic 251.9 million years ago, and lasted until 66 million years ago. The name Mesozoic means Middle Life, which is fitting, considering it's sandwiched between the two other eras of the Phanerozoic Eon. The marine environment of the world started the Triassic as diminished communities of mollusks and crustaceans, meekly trailing the seabed in search of food. They were much smaller than their predecessors, a consequence of mass extinctions. For this brief period of time, stromatolites made a comeback, as the hordes of grazing invertebrates that previously eliminated their number were themselves weakened and no longer a major threat. But the recovery of species soon found this collection of marine organisms in a much better state. Reef-building organisms returned, and on the evolutionary stage sprang a new group of corals, the Scleractinians. Though their name may be new to you, these animals certainly aren't, because many modern corals alive today belong to this lineage. Like their now extinct rugos and tabulate relatives, Scleractinian corals, or stony corals, can form colonies or remain singular organisms, but unlike them, their skeletons are much softer and more permeable. Early coral reefs started out very small, and it wouldn't be until later in the Triassic that they gained more prominence. The coiled ammonoids fully recovered following the Permian extinction event, and very quickly diversified into hundreds of new species. Bivalve and gastropod mollusks increased in numbers as well, and continued to push away their brachiopod neighbors, who themselves remained small and unimportant members of the oceans for the remainder of the Phanerozoic. Among deuterostomes, the echinoderms were doing well, with the filter-feeding crinoids and hard-plated urchins experimenting with new forms. The fishes had bounced back as well, in particular the sharks and ray-finned fishes. Lobe-finned fishes never recovered after the Permian, and only two lineages survived on to the present day. These were the lungfishes, who are freshwater organisms specialized for oxygen-poor waters, and the coelacanths, who are marine fishes that originally came in a variety of body forms. Moving along to nearshore waters and terrestrial habitats, reptiles were experiencing a boost in biodiversity. At the start of the Triassic, the Earth was originally in the grasp of the therapsid protomammals, of which a few groups had survived the extinction. There were the pig-like tusked decinodonts that feasted on woody plants. There were the carnivorous thorocephalians that preyed upon their larger relatives. And there were the cynodonts, who may or may not have already sported a covering of fur and whiskers. But their reign wasn't to last, as the reptiles that survived started to explore the new niches available to them, and very gradually pushed the therapsids into obscurity. One area that reptiles excelled at was recolonizing the water. As previously mentioned, there already were semi-aquatic reptiles during the Permian period, but it was in the Triassic period that we started to see more of a push towards fully aquatic living. Some groups of nearshore reptiles include the placodonts, who adapted their teeth for crushing the tough shells of marine mollusks. This reliance on slow bottom-dwelling prey facilitated the development of heavy armor plating along their backs, which would have aided in their ability to stay on the sea floor for longer periods of time. Other reptiles underwent even stranger experiments, including a topodentatus, 
which sported a face like a vacuum cleaner for digging through seafloor sands, Aret moripus, which was essentially a reptile version of a platypus, and Tanistrophius, which increased the length of its neck vertebrae so much that the animal was nearly all neck. The purpose of this exaggerated feature is currently debated, but a common interpretation sees the animal squatted along the seashore and using its neck like a fishing pole, though free-swimming isn't out of the question. More typical among these new aquatic reptiles were the nothosaurs, who were almost certainly capable of swimming in the open ocean after prey. Their heads sported thin teeth that would have made snagging slippery fish or squid a breeze. Descended from relatives of these reptiles were some of the first truly marine reptiles, the plesiosaurs, which often sported long necks for catching fish. The keys to their success stemmed from two new traits. First, their limbs were flattened and completely encased in skin, which formed paddles like that on a canoe. This would have increased their efficiency in swimming. Second, plesiosaur ancestors abandoned egg-laying on land for live birth in the water. Newborns would have emerged tail-first and had to cruise quickly to the surface for their first breath of air. By changing the shapes of their limbs and becoming viviparous, plesiosaurs became dynamic marine reptiles. A possibly related lineage of reptiles took these adaptations to an even greater extreme. Ichthyosaurs, like plesiosaurs, evolved from amphibious nearshore reptiles, but when they began to settle in the oceans they not only turned their limbs into fins and gained the ability of live birth, they had streamlined their bodies into a fish-like shape. This, incidentally, is where they got their name. Now, alongside the sharks, the oceans had apex predators once again. On land, the situation became just as pronounced. Like the earlier Permian, Reptiles took on arboreal, burrowing, and gliding niches, but now they really started to acquire more important roles in their ecosystems. Among the lineages that survived to the present day, there were three. The turtles, which by the late Triassic had managed to create their shells by solidifying their bodies and plates and moving their shoulders and limbs inside their ribcage. The lapidosaurs, of which the descendant branches, the lizards and the chwataras, had yet to diverge. And the archosaurs. It is this latter group that the Triassic blessed with unparalleled diversity. The ancestors of the archosaurs were originally sprawling reptiles that bore resemblance to the lizards of today, but at some point in their lineage members took a page from the synapsids and switched to a more upright posture. This was supplemented by the addition of a hole in between the eye socket and the nostril, which appears to have housed an air sac that would have lightened the skull as well as better regulate body temperature. It was here that two lineages diverged from each other around 247 million years ago. The Pseudosuchians, who mostly walked on semi-erect limbs, and the Ornithodirons, who bore fully erect limbs underneath their bodies. These probably would have been endothermic organisms, able to generate their own body heat. By the later part of the Triassic, these two groups of archosaurs were in competition with each other, and it was the Pseudosuchians who proved the more successful. They occupied nearly all of the major herbivorous and carnivorous niches in the later Triassic ecosystems. One group, the Iatosaurs, bore bony armor along their backs, and used their pointed snouts for eating low-growing plants. Another herbivore, Lodosaurus, was more of a pot-bellied animal that sported a beak, but no teeth, for nipping leaves. Among the carnivorous lot were the Rauasuchoids, who reached impressive sizes of 20 feet or more. Their large heads sported stabbing teeth, and the structure of their limbs suggests that some may have been able to walk on their hind limbs for extended periods of time, possibly running down larger prey. A related group, the Shuvasaurs were obligate bipeds, walking on their hind limbs all of the time. With such large and intimidating reptiles roaming the land, the Ornithodirons remained small-sized members of their communities, but they were experimenting too. By 228 million years ago, 
one lineage had achieved a major milestone in the history of vertebrates. These ornithodirons had developed flaps of skin between their bodies, supported by a greatly elongated finger, the equivalent of our ring finger. They became very lightweight and lengthened their heads while shortening their hind limbs. These were the pterosaurs, that great group of reptiles that were the first vertebrates to develop true powered flight, rather than gliding like early reptiles had done. By becoming airborne, pterosaurs were effectively removed from the competition going on below them, while the other ornithodirons continued to be pursued by the larger pseudosuchians. One group of these soon shifted their motor locomotion towards proper bipedality, becoming more upright and lighter on their feet. Their digits changed, with the fingers being able to finally grasp prey items and the toes supporting the animal's weight, rather than their soles. A notable change occurred in the hip bone, where the socket that the limbs attached to opened up completely. This allowed the animals to fully place their limbs underneath their bodies, which made them very efficient walkers and runners. It was roughly 233 million years ago that the dinosaurs entered the world. There are perhaps no other prehistoric animals that have a greater pop culture presence than the dinosaurs. Young children and elderly alike adore them, and they have inspired generations of people with their diversity and antiquity. Granted, as you have seen from our river journey, there are plenty of equally strange and often far more fascinating animals that have come and gone, but no matter what, it is the dinosaurs that have stayed with us the most. So it might be surprising to know that dinosaurs were not properly described by science until the mid-1800s, just under 180 years ago. Their name is Greek, and stems from two words meaning fearfully great reptiles. This might give an impression that the researchers who first studied these animals were amazed by their teeth, claws, and horns, but this was rather a declaration of awe at their grandeur. The first dinosaurs started out as small reptiles that appeared to have been opportunistic omnivores. Over the remainder of the late Triassic, they had diversified into three lineages that each had their own distinctive anatomy and behavior. There were the theropods, of which the majority remained bipeds throughout their entire history. Their skulls were lightweight, and their feet sported three prominent toes while the others were reduced or lost altogether. In their early days, theropods were predatory animals, mostly small in size but capable of reaching off-putting lengths. Lillian Sternus could grow to almost 17 feet long. The second group, the sauropodomorphs, originally started out as very similar to the theropods, perhaps even in diet, but they were being separated by an increasing dependence on vegetation. Their digestive systems were modified to take a primarily plant-based diet, and their necks grew in length to allow for ease at food collection. This became reflected in their teeth as well, with the sharp pointed shape being phased out for a more peg-shaped form. It wasn't until the very tail end of the Triassic that the sauropodomorphs reached their characteristic grand sizes, and a subgroup, the sauropods, dropped on all fours as their feet became columnar to support their weight. The biggest sauropods in the Triassic, like Isonosaurus and Anetrionitris, were around 20 to 30 feet long, from their long necks to their long tails. The last group, the Ornithischians, also developed into mostly herbivorous dinosaurs. On the tip of their lower jaw evolved the predentary bone, which formed a sort of beak for cutting plants, and their pubis bone, the lowest part of the pelvis, pointed backwards to allow more room for larger guts. Though this group must have evolved during the Triassic, their presence in the fossil record is lacking. While these ruling reptiles were certainly important organisms, the land was also experiencing new evolution of land plants and animals. The gymnosperms and ferns of the Permian managed to bounce back and were the dominant land floors of the Triassic. New groups of conifers, cycads, and ginkgos evolved across Pangaea, encouraged by periods of growth thanks to the intense wet seasons. A particularly beloved site in Arizona, USA, is full of petrified wood from a family of trees called Araucarias that evolved during the Triassic. 
These were massive trees, with some of the trunks spreading up to 200 feet tall and sporting strange patterned leaves. In the undergrowth could be found the first frogs, who were not leaping amphibians but rather crawlers that still sported short tails. Early spiders developed spinnerets, which gives species today the ability to produce silk into strands for webbing. Among the insects, the earliest two wing flies, or dipterans, evolved. Species in this group today may be familiar by the houseflies, horseflies, gnats, and mosquitoes. Also appearing were the sawflies, which sported a knife-like ovipostor on their abdomen, or cutting into leaves, allowing them to lay their eggs. We'll return to this herbivorous group of insects later on. Among the therapsids, one lineage of cynodonts became very reduced in size and began to shift to a more nocturnal existence as many of the minor reptiles began to feast upon them. These small furry animals were the earliest mammals, born in the world as a seemingly insignificant part of the fauna. But they were tough survivors, and their switch to nighttime living certainly did them a favor. In an almost sadistic turn of events, the Triassic ended with another mass extinction event. As far as causation is concerned, this event has been tied to the beginning of rifting events in Pangaea as the supercontinent began to finally split apart. Fault lines started opening between the landmasses, and there were volcanic eruptions associated with this. Conditions proved to be very poor for some of the organisms as carbon dioxide levels spiked. In the oceans, there were the usual losses among marine invertebrates, with aminoids doing particularly badly. Save for a few species, like the early mammals, the therapsids met their end, and the great range of reptiles on land and near the seashore also died out. There would be no more aedosaurs, nothosaurs, rawasukoids, placodonts, and other weird reptiles. That grand competition between pseudosuchians and ornithodirons was finally over, with the hands being dealt in the ornithodirons' favor, even if they won by the process of elimination, literally. With the close of the Triassic came the assurance that the Mesozoic era would be known as the Age of Dinosaurs. To continue this episode, please go to part 2.